message of the Bible is this. Nobody's getting right with God by being good because you'll never be good enough. You will only be declared to be good. And you're only going to be declared to be good if you put faith in the one person who was good, Jesus Christ. I'm glad that you're with us today on Resonate with Trent Griffith. I'm Aaron Paulus. We spent the last several weeks learning to think, as Pastor Trent says, in high definition. We've been learning what the Bible says about itself, about man, about God, about Christ, and about salvation. Today, we'll continue as Pastor Trent helps us understand what happens through our salvation, how we, as sinners, can have right standing with God. Here's Pastor Trent. I was reminded this week as I was studying of the first time I ever went to the Grand Canyon. How many of you have ever gone to the Grand Canyon? And you, you anticipate it and you finally get there and you look down and you realize how deep this canyon is. And when you realize how deep this canyon is, there is an emotion that floods over you. Do you know what it is? It is one of humility because you realize in the midst of how deep the canyon is, how shallow you are, right? Because you are gazing into something that is so massive, you realize how small and insignificant you are in that moment. Nobody goes to the Grand Canyon for the purpose of building up their self-esteem. You just don't do that. That is not the sense you get when you go to the Grand Canyon. And that is not the sense you get when you dive deep into the doctrines of Scripture. We're we're looking at these doctrines. We call them the mega themes of Scripture, just the mountaintops or the deepest canyons of Scripture. And we're trying to dive as deep as we can into uh, those deep truths. And when you do that, you are quickly impressed with how little you know. You, you, you can very quickly reach the limits of your understanding when you're diving into the mysteries of God's Word. And yet that should never prevent us from teaching it and studying it and thinking deeply about it. Do you believe? The truth of the matter is, if we were completely honest, even some of those of us who have been in church for years, and even those of us that call ourselves Christians, we at times doubt and we struggle to believe. And so what we do in diving into the Scriptures is to bolster our faith. It is fuel for faith. And those of you that would be very honest to say, I'm not quite convinced, I do believe. You've come to the right place, and you're doing the right thing, and you're welcome here as we dive into the Scripture. The reason we're studying it is because of a little verse that's tucked away in 1 John 5, verse 13. Let me just quote it for you real quick. Very simple. John, who's writing this, he's writing the pages of Scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says the reason that he's writing. He says, I write these things to you who believe. In the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John is saying the reason I'm writing this book is so that you can know you are saved. John tells us we can know. There are a lot of people that if you ask them, 
are you saved? They say, I hope so. I, I think so. But do you know so? So the reason we're studying this, especially as it relates to the doctrine of salvation, that's what we're thinking about today, is so that we can walk away from here not hoping I'm saved, not thinking I'm saved, but with a rock-solid faith in knowing that I am the the object of God's grace and that I have been saved. So last week we started to look at this. And we said that there is an order to our salvation. We looked at Romans chapter 8. I asked you to open to that chapter so you can look down there in your own Bible. You might want to underline these four words that you find in there because we find an order in our salvation. God saves us in order. Did you know that? He says in Romans chapter 8 verse 30, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you see that order there? And if you really uh, want to impress your friends, then you can use the Latin version of this. Theologians call it the ordo salutis. And so we're looking at the ordo salutis or the order of salvation over the course of these weeks. And uh, just by way of review, we learned that it had to do with our election, our common grace, the gospel call or the effectual call, regeneration and conversion. What do you think of when you hear the word conversion? You're supposed to think of two words. Correct. Faith and repentance. And so when we're converted, the response of our heart, the response of a believing person that causes conversion is faith and repentance. So there is a response on our part. As we talked about election, we learned that it is God that chooses us that results in us choosing God. God initiates and we respond by choosing him and our choice is important. It is valid. It is It is an actual choice, a decision that we make. I have decided to follow Jesus. But the reason we decide that is because God put that faith within us. We are so corrupted by sin that if left up to our free will, we would choose to reject Christ every time. That's how messed up our thinking is. And so God has to act before we choose. And you say, well, that doesn't sound fair that if God... If God saved me, why didn't he save everybody? Listen, if you want God to be fair, we're all toast, okay? Because we do not want to rely on God's fairness. We want to rely on God's grace. If God were fair, we would all get exactly what we deserved in hell. It is God's justice that would be served if all of us spend an eternity in hell. But it is because of God's grace that he invites us into relationship with him. And you say, well, what, how does that affect evangelism? If, if God just chooses everybody, then I guess we don't really have anything to do. No, the same God that chose who would be saved chose how they would be saved. And they would be saved by hearing and believing the gospel. So it is incumbent upon us to preach the gospel to everyone with the assurance of knowing that some will be saved. And so that's kind of the doctrine of election. And then we looked at common grace, God's kindness and goodness. The fact that he did not incinerate me the first time I sinned shows that God was patient and kind, giving me an opportunity to believe. And then the effectual call that produced a response in me that God draws me. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 44, that no one can come to the Father except 
the Father draw him. That's the effectual call. And so if this morning you sense a a calling, you sense an urgency about a relationship with Christ, you can know that God is working on your behalf. And then regeneration, new birth, that we are born again, and then conversion, we respond in repentance and faith. So that brings us up to today. Let me just say as we get into this, that God's sovereignty never removes human responsibility. As much as we believe that God chooses, there's a choice that we must make. And so what is the rest of the order here? This is what we're going to look at today. Justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. So, and as I said last week, you don't have to know all this to be saved, but if you are saved, knowing this ought to produce an incredible humility and response of worship and evangelism. Now that I know that, I'm going to go share this good news with others. Let's start with point number six. Point number six is this, justification. Let's give a high definition to this term, justification. We're going to use this definition. It is the judicial act of God in which he declares our sins to be forgiven and Christ's righteousness belonging to us. It has two Parts. Notice, first of all, it is a declaration. Do you like a courtroom drama? You like movies that are courtroom dramas? I love courtroom dramas. And there's the point at the end of the movie where the judge comes and the verdict has been made and it's announced. You and I relate to God as a judge. God is a judge, but for those of us who believe, he is also our lawyer, our defense attorney, the advocate that steps in between the judgment and the sentence. And so we need to see ourselves rightly before a judge as a criminal who is guilty of a crime worthy of death. And yet in the courtroom of God, outside of the criminal, God makes a declaration. This guilty criminal is pardoned of all crimes. That's just the first half. And then we're going to treat him as if he was the finest law abider in the community. We're going to treat him as if he perfectly obeyed every law. That is the act of justification. Let me show you to you in Romans chapter 8, verse 33. Very simply, it says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Are we guilty? Yes, we are. And we can judge ourselves. We can bring charges against ourselves. Others can bring charges against us, but they are not the judge. It is God and God alone who justifies. Now, let me tell you something about the doctrine of justification. The doctrine of justification is the dividing line between the true gospel and false gospels that are out there being preached in many churches this morning. It is the dividing line between the true gospel and false gospels. So important is the doctrine of justification that it sparked the Protestant Reformation almost 500 years ago. 
This was a man named Martin Luther. 500 years ago, as a Catholic priest, he was beating himself up, torturing himself under the weight of trying to be good enough to impress God so he would get into heaven. And yet he was never free until he rediscovered the doctrine of justification found in the book of Romans. As he studied, he simply found it. It is the just who will live by faith. And that truth sparked the Protestant Reformation. Because of this doctrine, we are not Catholic this morning. This is the dividing line between Catholicism and Protestantism. This is where we divide with our Catholic friends and say, this is, you ever wonder what the difference is between Protestant and Catholic? This is it. It is the doctrine, our view of the doctrine of justification. And after Martin Luther and the Reformers rediscovered that as Catholic priests, there was a little division in the Catholic Church that uh, resulted, and, and the Catholic leadership got together, got together over a course of about 15 years. They met together to try to respond to this Protestant Reformation and what they're believing, this doctrine of justification. What do we believe about the doctrine of justification? So they met over a course of about 15 years at a council they named the Council of Trent. Very unfortunate naming, uh, uh, either by my mother or the Catholic Church, but that was the name of it. It's the Council of Trent. And, and out of the Council of Trent, in response to this doctrine, the justif- justification, the Roman Catholic Church at the Council of Trent issued this statement. If anyone says men obtain of God through faith alone the grace of justification, let him be anathema. The official position of the Catholic Church is if you believe that you are justified by faith alone, you're dying and going to hell. That's a false doctrine. That's what they say. But we embrace it and we see it in Scripture as we think that it is God alone who justifies. This truth is so powerful, the doctrine of justification, it sparked the first great awakening in the colonial years of America. A man named Jonathan Edwards. By the way, theologians have great haircuts, if you uh, ever wanted to know that. Um, just Jonathan Edwards was a pastor of a church in Northampton, Massachusetts. And in the years of seven, the 1730s, he was grieved over the fact that so many people in his church, so many members of his church just kind of openly said, we don't believe this stuff. They they were unbelievers who were members of the church. And so Jonathan Edwards started to preach a series of sermons on the doctrine of justification. Do you know what happened? God started to regenerate the hearts of those lost, phony, hard-hearted church members, so much so that it spread throughout the community. It spread across what was then the colonial states of America. It went across the ocean, and it hit Europe, and we experienced a worldwide spiritual awakening when the doctrine of justification was rediscovered. Here's another guy with a great haircut. This is a guy named John Murray. He was one of the Puritans, and he said this about the difference between regeneration and justification. Remember, regeneration, I think, was step four in the order. And he said this, regeneration is an act of God in us. Justification is a judgment of God with respect to us. The distinction is like that of the distinction of the act of a surgeon and the act of a judge. Following this? He says the surgeon, when he removes an inward cancer, does something in us. That's not what a judge does. 
He gives a verdict regarding our judicial status. If we are innocent, he declares accordingly. And then he says this, the purity of the gospel is bound up with the recognition of this distinction. If justification is confused with regeneration or sanctification, then the door is open for the perversion of the gospel at its center. Justification is still the article of the standing or the falling of the church. We can never lose this doctrine. It is the heart of of the gospel, the act of God in the courtroom of God that declares a guilty criminal innocent and then thinks of him as if he were as righteous as Christ. And we must never confuse regeneration, justification, and sanctification. We're going to talk about sanctification in a minute. Don't ever cross the lines. It's so important. Because what we're saying is justification is an act of God. We are justified by faith and then treated as if we were as righteous as Christ. We find that doctrine in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. One of the, if you have never memorized a verse of Scripture, pick this one and start there. This one verse is enough for you to understand all 10 steps. It is enough for you to believe this morning. It is enough for you to sit down with a friend and share the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, For our sake, He, God the Father, made Him, God the Son, to be sin. Did you catch that? God the Father made God the Son to be sin sin on the cross as Jesus had those nails go through his hand. God the Father was treating God the Son as if he were sin. How does a holy God treat sin? He pours out his wrath and his judgment on sin. That's what he did to his son on the cross even though he, Jesus, knew no sin. Completely innocent that in him we might become the righteousness of God, even though we were nothing but sin. And so Jesus took our place on the cross so that we can take Jesus' place in the courtroom of God. Another guy with a great haircut. Charles Spurgeon said this about the doctrine of justification. If you believe in Jesus, you stand before God as if you were Christ because Christ stood before God as if he were you. He in your stead, you in his stead, say it with me, substitution. Familiar themes at Harvest Bible Chapel. Are you grasping this? Are you thinking smoke is coming out of some of your ears right now? This is awesome. Look at what God has done in the courtroom of God. Well, who is justified? We need to ask that question. And the answer is those who believe. Do you believe? What do you believe? Look at what the scripture says in, in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. This is the difference. This is where people fall off the wagon of justification. What is the difference between Someone who is justified and someone who is not. The answer is faith versus works. Galatians 2.16. A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus. So we also have been believed in Christ Jesus in order that 
in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, how many people will be justified? Everybody hold up the universal symbol of how many people who are justified by being good. Zero. But yet this is the default setting in the human heart. I mean, if you had your first sniff of religion, whatever point you had a God thought, you probably thought in order to be right with this God who is good, I have to be good. So I got to get better than I am because I know I'm not good. And so how am I going to get good? I better pray. I better go to church. I better give some money. I better be nice to my sister. I, 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 I better not turn off that nasty program and not watch the Disney Channel. And, and it, we, this is the default thinking. We got to get gooder. And the message of the Bible is this. Nobody's getting right with God by being good because you'll never be good enough. You will only be good. You will only be declared to be good. And you're only going to be declared to be good if you put faith in the one person who was good, Jesus Christ. The world doesn't get us. They call us people of faith. You ever, you ever hear that? If, if, if we could just say to them, listen, it is not our faith that is good. Faith is not good. There is nothing meritorious about faith. It is only what Christ did who was good, and faith in the one who is good makes us good. It is not your faith, it is the work of Christ that is the object of our faith. That God says, if you believe, you will be justified. Everybody take a breath. And let me ask you, have you been justified? Well, no. Do you have faith in believing and embracing that doctrine? Here's step number seven in the process. We'll call it adoption. Adoption. Adoption is an act of God that makes us members of God's family. Now, that may seem simple, and this is awesome. I mean, you can sit down and talk to a child about this. They, they, they know what it's, uh, have friends who were adopted and, and the fathers. And, and, and when I ask you about your family or I ask you about your father, especially in our culture, there are some of you like, man, I do not like to think about God being my father because my father was a rat. And you talk about God being good and he's a father, but I, it's hard for me to understand how God can be a father and be good because my father was not good. And yet we know that he is a loving, gracious father. And this is so awesome because God could have justified us as a judge. God could have given us life as a surgeon. And yet he went one step farther. He said, I'm going to treat you not as a medical patient, not as a courtroom character. I'm going to treat you as a son. I'm going to welcome you into my family. We see it here in this scripture in Romans 8. You've got your Bible open. Look at it there in verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of, say it, adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So think about this in the sequence. We are all, have you ever heard somebody say, oh, you, we're all children of God? Have you ever heard that? 
Not doctrinally true. We are not all children of God. Jesus said there is someone that we were children of. We were all at one time children of the devil. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 8 if you want to read it. He said we were all children of the devil and yet God the Father has come and adopted us out of his family into the family of God and you have a new father. And notice the language that we use with our father. See the word Abba? That's not a rock group from the 70s. That is a name in the Greek that we use for God and we call him our daddy. He's our daddy. A intimate, close, personal relationship. And until Jesus used that kind of language, people did not relate to God as a father. They related to him as a judge, very distant. Jesus brought the fatherhood of God into focus for each one of us who were adopted into his family as sons. It goes on and says this, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, but, uh, providing we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. little sneak, uh, sneak preview of coming attraction there, that little reference to glorification. That's coming later right there. See, it all fits together. So we're children. This is the great thing. Because God has adopted us into His family... We don't just have a father, we have an inheritance that we're waiting to receive. You know what that means? What you got now is not all you're going to get. And unlike an inheritance here on earth where we have to wait for the father to die to get the inheritance, our inheritance we get when we die. And we're going to get an upgrade over everything that we're experiencing right now. Not only do we have a father, but we have brothers and sisters in the family and some crazy uncles um, in the family. Because, and, and this helps us relate to one another because we have to treat our brothers and sisters like we're family, even though they got quirks and hang-ups. And, and we're, we're, the great thing is, is we can trust, we can tell, we can tattle on, 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 on them. On the God, did you see what our brother was doing over here? God, we want to pray that you would correct him. And God does that. That's another evidence that you're a son of God. In Hebrews chapter 12, it says, every son is disciplined by a father. And if you're a child of God, at some point when you disobey your father, you're getting it. Um, God's going to bring you back into line. Another evidence that we are sons. We've been adopted. Jesus has entered the courtroom of God on behalf of all of those who would repent and believe. He's paid a fine that no man could pay. Have you received God's pardon by accepting Christ's offer for you to free you from the imprisonment of your sin? If you have, your freedom makes you part of a new family. John 1.12 says this, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
We hope that you'll join us next week as Pastor Trent shares a powerful illustration of what it means to be adopted by God. Well, you've been listening to Resonate with Trent Griffith, a ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. We hope that you'll visit us for one of our weekend worship services. You can join us Saturdays at 5 p.m. or Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. We're located on Hickory Road, just north of Cleveland Road in Granger, Indiana. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Aaron Paulus, and it's our prayer that God's Word will resonate in your heart and in your life this week. Resonate is a ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel, Granger. Visit us online at harvestgranger.org.